Welcome to Under the Radar, a show about independent iOS app development. I'm Marco Arment. And I'm David Smith. Under the Radar is never longer than 30 minutes, so let's get started. So, David, after a very long time of procrastination, including writing an entire MP3 encoder, I have finally run out of other things to do, and now I have to finally write my watchOS 3 app for Overcast. I have enjoyed watching you try and find things to do just to avoid working on this. It, it has been quite a feat of creativity <laughs> and uh, energy spent to avoid spending <laughs> the, whatever the, the, the relatively small amount of effort it was probably will take for you to ultimately write your watchOS 3 app. <laughs> yes. It's, I, I have to say, so far, I, so I, I've written a, a good portion of it so far. It's not done, but, but it's probably um, maybe, maybe a third to halfway done. And even, even just having done that little bit, I'm like, man, this... <laughs> Like that little bit only took me like a couple of days. And I'm like, you know, I probably should have done this earlier in the summertime. Uh, but I didn't. Here we are. Uh, so I thought maybe for this week it might be a good idea to talk about the lead up to watchOS 3 development and kind of what I've chosen to do for it and why and, you know, kind of the lessons I've learned so far in watch development. And you know, to some degree, the the challenges facing watch development today that that still remain, um, and having you here is is kind of a golden resource here because you know more about watch development and the watch market than probably anybody outside of Apple and probably many people inside of Apple even. <laughs> so, uh, so I thought I'd kind of go through the history of the Overcast Watch app briefly, and then kind of what I learned and what I've chosen to do now. Yeah, I think it makes sense. It's it's definitely a good time, I think, to be getting back into watch development. Um, and so I think it's a good thing to kind of unpack so we can I imagine there's a lot of people in the same situation that you find yourself in who maybe jumped into watch development when it was new. And um, like at the time, the watch, I think there was a tremendously hyped both internally uh, at from you know from Apple as well. It's just generally, it's like you know this was their their big new next device after the iPad, and so I think there's a lot of excitement about it. It didn't quite go as wildly successfully as some people may have expected or hoped it could be. And Watch OS or Watch back then it was Watch Kit One was a little bit rough. Uh, little so bit. I imagine. And so I imagine there's now a lot of people kind of in the situation that you find yourself in of like, maybe it's time to get back in. WatchOS 3 is overall quite a lot better than the last two. And I think it's widely expected that um, in probably just a few weeks, there's going to be um, and, you know, the announcement of a next generation device, which makes, you know, might make a lot of the things that we're doing even easier from a performance perspective. Exactly. Yeah, so so basically, I mean, you basically covered it. So so the the brief history of of Watch OS, which is funny because like it's kind of funny that we're already on version three of the OS, even though the watch, we're still on version one of the hardware, and it's only yeah. it's only like a year and a half old. Uh, but basically, uh, Watch OS one, you know, it came out, and as as most of our listeners are probably aware, um, the the environment for third party apps was this kind of like split environment where the interface was kind of running on the watch but all the code was basically running on the phone as a local extension on the phone and it was kind of just directing the watch as to what to show on the interface and this this created lots of problems and challenges it it was nice because it was it was relatively easy to get something going from scratch Um, one of the great luxuries of that was that the your, your watch extension because it was running on the phone really um it could read from the local data storage on the phone so that your watch extension and your main iphone app could share a data store 
so there were no issues with syncing or anything like that. Um, you know, you, it was literally just like read from your database. Like, it, you know, you might have to do the one-time work of creating a container and moving your database into that container, um, although you have to do that with pretty much any useful extension on iOS. Once you have that in place, you basically got like free sync. There was no sync to, to really be had here. You could just show the data from the iOS app right on the watch. The downside of it was that it was very slow and very limited and and fairly unreliable as well. And as you mentioned, though, like most of us, you know, we we thought the watch would be this massive thing, this massive hit, the next big thing. And so many of us, both of us included, developed watch apps before the watch was even out because Apple let us do that and have them there for day one. We developed these apps before it was even out, and we really had very different expectations for how the watch would be used um, that than than what happened in reality, and I think even Apple had very different expectations of like you know how apps would work, how how good apps could be and would be, how how many apps people would actually end up using and what they end up doing with it. So we all basically made these like complex you know deluxe apps on the watch that were basically like small iPhone apps, and then the real world happened and we realized oh this is not that great and it's very cumbersome and they're very slow and they're very unreliable, and so my first version of my app like many people's, was basically just a shrunken down version of the iPhone navigation stack. That my, my three-level navigation of like, I have your list of podcasts and playlists on the root screen, then you can go into that and get a, get the list of episodes in each of those podcasts or playlists, and then you could go one level deep from that and go to the now playing screen. And I replicated that in my first version of my watch app. It was way too complicated for a watch app in practice, and it was far too slow. And and most of those features were kind of not needed on the watch. You know, I, I think we all kind of went through this learning process of realizing, you know, we actually don't want to spend more than like a couple of seconds using a watch app. Um, because if you're spending more than a couple of seconds, it's probably faster to just take out your phone where it's way better, way more capable, way faster and way more reliable. So very shortly after I released that first version, um, once I was able to, to actually get a watch myself, once the watches came out, I got my own, I lived with it for a little while. I almost immediately rewrote the interface. I kind of made like a version two of the app that was rethought and redesigned for what I learned actually living with the watch. Um, and it was basically a, a deluxe now playing screen. Um, it, and this is the version that's still, for our listeners, this is the version that you still see today if you use Overcast on the Apple Watch, although there aren't very many of you, which I'll get to. <laughs> but uh, for the for the you know four of you who use Overcast on the Apple Watch, um, this is the version that, that is still there today. Where you know, I, shortly after getting the watch, I you know, based on real world usage, I learned what what was needed, and I I made this version two that was a now playing screen with a few extra features to do things like reorder uh, what's playing next or skip to what's playing next, or, you know, change the change the playback effects or the speed or anything like that. This had a number of problems, too. Uh, one of them was that it was it was based on fairly non-obvious UI. Um, like, to reorder what's next, you would just tap on the album art for what was showing next, and it would bring up a menu. But it, it didn't look like a button, and there was kind of no good way to make it look like a button, because it was just album art, which is already button-shaped, but nobody think, everyone thinks it's an image, not a button. So a lot of people just never use that feature. And also, I was, you know, tr- in trying to keep it to this, like, one simple screen for watch kit speed, basically, um, I had to bury a lot of features in the Force Touch menu. And I think we've we've seen Apple and everybody kind of moving away from the Force Touch menu, having important features, because basically nobody ever saw them. Nobody ever found them. Have you found that to be the case? Yeah, and I mean, I think it's the clearest ex- 
proof of this is that in using Watch OS 3 um, heavily since WWDC, in almost every one of Apple's apps, Force Touch has been either removed in some certain cases or you can now do it in another way. Um, like I think I can't think of honestly actually one example where you have to use force touch anymore that there's, you know, it's, there's usually now they'll, they tend to do, uh, the swiped, like the paged interface, Mm -hmm. you know, you'll swipe to the side for extra controls rather than, um, doing it that way. Or even, you know, you can now customize complications and watch faces in the companion app rather than having to do it on, on the device with the force touch push. Uh, I think in general that that paradigm is has sort of been determined to be too undiscoverable that p- people just don't know it's there. And if you don't know it's there and you're putting important things behind it, it can definitely get a little bit awkward. Yeah. And I, I you know, I, I would say we've learned a lot. I mean, even like what I learned with the first version of my app, like the, the whole like navigation paradigm, like where you have this level and you dive into this level and dive into the next level and you go back, back, back. That works so well on the phone. It's been so standard on the phone for so long. But on the watch, I think we've learned that even like a navigation stack really doesn't work very well on the watch and should probably be avoided. Um, anyway, so Watch OS 2 came out last summer. And Watch OS 2, you know, introduced a, a pretty big upgrade to what watch apps could do and, and more importantly, how they ran. Basically, it moved the watch extension from running on the phone and just kind of remotely directing the interface uh, on the watch to the extension itself running on the watch. You're basically running an, a, finally a native app on, on the watch. And this was much faster and much more reliable than WatchKit 1, but it was still not fast and reliable. Like it, it was an improvement, but it was still very slow, still a little bit unreliable. And the, it brought a major challenge to a lot of apps because all of a sudden you couldn't, because the, the, the extension was now running on the watch instead of on the phone, you could no longer uh, read from the same data container as the phone app. So you had to, and you did this, we talked about this, you, had to, you, you basically had to build in either make the watch app have its own local storage and then have some kind of complicated sync system to sync with the parent app when it was connected. Um, and then, of course, deal with, well, what, what if the watch is not connected to the parent app? What if the, what if the phone is not nearby or the connection drops? Then you got to, like, queue up stuff and then sync it back to the parent app when you get the connection back. And that's very complicated. Or you could basically just have it basically be like a remote display layer for the phone app where the watch stores nothing and it's just reading stuff off the phone, which is basically re-implementing WatchKit 1. Uh, so it was it was not and and then of course the app wouldn't work when the phone was away from the watch and so that that like both approaches had downsides like making the watch be its own local storage has tons of complexity as you learned right with pedometer oh yeah i mean the thing that you get that in some ways the hardest part with with watch sync is is that you don't in a normal syncing environment where you have a client and a server the connectivity between the two is usually fairly reliable that you either you know like if you if, if i'm trying to make a, a web a, a call to my web server it'll either work or it won't um and it will you know typically return fair you know fairly quickly if it is going to return and obviously there's a lot of issues you can get into with you know weak cellular connections and things but i think by and large in my experience that is the experience you have Whereas with watch connectivity, the thing that gets will drive you mad is that you can have it's very unpredictable. 
because your devices are communicating over Bluetooth, um, over Wi-Fi, potentially switching between those two modes. Um, and if they're on Bluetooth, say like you're out somewhere away from a Wi-Fi network, then you have the interesting things of as they get farther away, the reliability of that connection drops off fairly precipitously, it seems. And so you have to build in a lot more um, checks and a lot more like uh, you can't just rely on like TCP to be the thing that's making your connection reliable. You have to go a bit farther and do a lot of work to make, to just ba- do fairly basic moving. Like in pedometer, all I'm doing is moving around step counts. You know, they're just, I'm just taking integers and throwing them around, but reliably and, and dependably doing that has taken a lot of work to get, um, to the point that it is now where I, you know, it, it, it generally works. It's generally reliable. Um, people don't miss data very often, um, but it's definitely a, a tricky problem to deal with because the it's sort of like you're always it, it's like if your iPhone app had to always work uh, or the only situation it was ever really going to work was on like an edge network uh, in the cellular networking days. You're kind of building an app that can only do that. And even back then, I mean, I, I wrote apps that did communication over edge networking and really slow 2G networks. And it was rough. And watch kind of connectivity as a, a reminder of those, those bad old days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so basically the combination of like this, the complexity of having to deal with this data layer being separate and the connectivity issues. And then, you know, watch OS 2, if you did all of this, your app still wasn't really that much faster or that much more reliable than WatchKit 1. Um, so it was basically a lot of work for not that much gain. And I think we've seen in, in, the, in the marketplace for watch apps so far, I think we've seen that a lot of people, myself included, decided, you know what, it's not worth it. So basically, I never, I never upgraded to WatchOS 2 with my app because it was just going to be way too much work for way little gain. And then I stopped wearing the Apple Watch like last, last winter. Uh, I got I, I kind of fell really hard into into the uh, the rabbit hole of uh, other watches like mechanical watches, and I just stopped wearing the Apple Watch. So this this problem kind of went away for me for a while um, until I added analytics to the entire app, which I'll get to in a minute. But first, our sponsor. We are sponsored this week by Linode. Go to linode.com/radar to learn more and sign up now. Linode is a combination of high-performance SSD Linux servers spread across eight data centers around the world. And it's a, it's a fantastic solution for your server infrastructure. You can get a server up and running in under a minute with plans starting at just $10 a month. And that now gets you two gigs of RAM for just 10 bucks a month. You'll be able to choose your resource level, your Linux distro, and your node's location right from the awesome manager tool. And believe me, I've used so many web host control panels. Linode's is by far my favorite one by a long shot. And of course, once you're up and running, you can easily deploy, boot, and resize your virtual server with just a few clicks. Now, Linode has over 400,000 customers who are all serviced by their friendly 24-7 support team. They're even open over holidays. If you need something you need help with, they are there for you. And they're also very committed to improving their infrastructure. For example, um, they, they uh, a little while back, they made a switch from Zen to KVM as the hypervisor, and their latest Unix benchmark showed a 300% performance increase. Linode is the full package for your server infrastructure needs. They have the power you require as well as the infrastructure and assistance you want. And Underscore and I, we we both use Linode. And so I've used it since 2011. How long have you used it? 
I, I was recently checking this. My first time I signed up for an account with them was in 2008, and <laughs> wow. I've been using them ever since. That's fantastic. Yeah, I've, yeah. I, I went there 2011 and have not left since. And I've I've slowly moved everything off of all other hosts I was on and moved it onto Linode because it it it's, it was great back then, and it's just gotten even greater since then. Um, so we're big fans. As a listener of this show, if you sign up at linode.com/radar, you will not only be supporting us, but you also get twenty dollars towards any Linode plan. And with a seven day money back guarantee, there's nothing to lose so go to lindo.com slash radar to learn more sign up and take advantage of that twenty dollar credit or use promo code radar 20 at checkout thank you so much to linode for sponsoring this show all right so i added analytics to overcast uh recently you know a few months back to kind of get an idea of like you know what people actually used in practice what i should be working on what kind of platforms that were people actually using um etc and I, I checked the stats today for my watch app, and uh, now keep in mind this is still a WatchKit One app, so it is slow and it sucks. However, uh, the the numbers are still pretty low. Um, the glance is seemingly installed by about six percent of active users. And this is not total users; this is active users, so it's already you know already reduced from total users. So about six percent have the have the glance installed. Um, the actual app, the full app, is installed by about one percent of active users. This is pretty bad. <laughs> now, among that 1%, bringing it down further, 80% of that 1% only ever look at the now playing screen. So they don't actually like hit any buttons or reorder the episodes, which is like the hit the headlining feature of this of this update or anything like that. You know, so that's the vast majority of this already small group. 14% of that 1% have gone as far as using the seek buttons, you know, skip back, skip forward. 5% use the play pause button. Only 1% of 1% actually picked a new episode to play from like the, from the menu. Uh, 0.5% of 1% changed any speed or effect settings. And finally, the key feature of the app uh, of the of the of the of the, uh, the redone app, the key feature of being able to to reorder the episodes that are going to play next, 0.1% of the 1% of active users. It's not a lot. Who use the app? And and you know this ends up being like you know single digit numbers or double digit numbers of total users. It's like it's it's a very very small number of people. 0.1% of the 1% you actually have have reordered episodes to play next. Um, so this teaches me a few lessons about about watch development here that that I think are very useful, especially you know at least to me, but but I think I think this applies to to many watch apps. Basically, I learned that almost none of my active users actually have the watch app installed at all. Uh, of the people who use it, the vast majority of use is basically read only use. They're they're glancing at it. They're they're looking at the status of what's playing. Um, but and and among the other uses, you know, the the little the little slice, the you know, the twenty percent of the people who have the watch installed who actually hit any buttons in the app besides just looking at it, um, the vast majority of those are the very basic play, pause, and seek controls. So you know, basically, what you know, it's a now playing screen. They're using it as a now playing screen, and that's it. Like every other feature beyond the now playing screen is being used by almost nobody, and so. Even though I went, like, for my version 1 app that was all the complex iPhone navigation replicated on the watch, and I stripped that down to my version 2 app, which is, which is like a now playing screen with these deluxe additional features, even that wasn't simple enough. Even that was, like, way more than what people actually use. So it, it came time this summer 
for me to really consider uh, the version three app. And I thought, you know, first of all, like, you know, I skipped watch OS two and basically nothing bad happened. So why make a version three app at all? And one of the problems is, as I mentioned earlier, I, I stopped wearing the Apple watch myself. So there's a challenge here of like, do I even want to make something that I probably won't use? You know, I, I, I had some crazy idea where like, maybe I'll like stick the Apple watch in my car and have it be like a, a remote control in the car for the overcast playback because that's better than than Tesla's thing. So you know maybe that, but so that might be a place I could use it. But even that, I'll probably never actually do. Um, so I probably will never actually use this app. And if I look at my data, very few of my customers even use the current watch. Again, it's like the current watch app is used by you know between one and six percent of active users, depending on how you measure how you define usage. So it's, it's you know, below 10% of, of my users here actually have the watch app and are seemingly using it. Um, although I, a caveat there is that I don't know, like, is that because it's slow? Because it's watch kit one, like, is, would more people use it if it didn't suck? So I don't know, you know, and that's kind of, you know, something I got to find out, I guess. And it's also probably worth um, pointing out. So in, like, in the app that I have the best data for, uh, in Pedometer++, um, only about 12% of uh, my users have an Apple Watch paired to their iPhone. And so that's certainly a baseline, too, in terms of... And that's for, you know, it's it's a, an app that measures fitness, and so people measuring fitness are perhaps slightly more apt to have something that's a strongly marketed as a fitness tracker, um, but it's still only about 12%. And so... You know, the even of people who may want to use your app, like it's still going to always be a relatively small percentage of your overall user base of people who just just using it on the phone. Yeah, that's true. Um, but but, you know, at, at the same time, like the, the podcast player market that I'm in is very competitive. You know, that's that's problem number one. It's very competitive. So like if everyone else has a watch app and I don't, that's a big reason for watch users to go pick a different app than mine. And so if I if I just let this thing languish uh, or don't have one at all, that is a cost I will bear there. And, you know, the other thing is, like, WatchKit 1 was terrible. Uh, WatchOS 2 was only a little bit less terrible. But WatchOS 3 is fairly decent as these things go. Like, it, the WatchOS 3 apps, people are going to expect much more from them because they can, they finally, they can be actually a lot better than WatchKit 1. So it was easy for me to get away with skipping WatchKit 2 because the difference wasn't that big. But if I also skip WatchKit or WatchOS 3, then my app, first of all, will, will work a lot worse than any competing apps. But also my own app will then start to look abandoned or unmaintained. Um, and that's, that's not really healthy for, for my app and its, and its chances in the market. And it's also just kind of embarrassing. Like I don't, I don't want my app to look unmaintained and abandoned. You know, I want it to look like a, like a well-maintained app because, in my opinion, it is. Um, so, so I decided I got to make a watchOS three app. So, why? So you know, one option a lot of people ask for is I need a a watch app with local storage of podcasts, so they could leave their phone behind and take just the watch and play podcasts from just the watch, either through headphones or through the little built-in speaker. Um, and this is something, I mean, people ask for this with watchOS 2 also. The demand for this is very, very low, and the amount of work it would take is very, very high. And the resulting product, because of the still existing limitations in watchOS, even with OS 3, the resulting product would still 
not be very good. Like, there's a reason why people aren't like transferring a bunch of music to their watches and taking headphones and running with them. Like, because it, like the process of large data transfers to it and the reality of using it to play audio, it's it just kind of sucks still. And with watchOS three, it still sucks. So this would be a ton of work for not that much reward. And that would result in something not very good. So I'm not going to do a whole client that can work offline from the phone and have local storage. Um, so instead, I decided to do a much simpler design that, you know, looking back at my analytics, my analytics tell a very clear story. Very, very clear. What they keep telling me is most people basically want a now playing screen. Like, and not not even most, like, you know, 60%, most, like, you know, 99%. Like, the vast majority of people who actually use my watch app just want it to be very simple. A now playing screen. Maybe a few additional buttons here and there, but for the most part, a now playing screen. And just make it work really well and make it really fast. So that's what I'm making. My watchOS 3 app is just a now playing screen with a couple additional things that are, you know, a few minor additions, but very minor. Um, because the idea here is to keep it simple and to keep it very, very fast with watch with watchOS 3. And that way, if I keep it simple, that then gives me the ability to to keep it updated without devoting a ton of time to it without have without it being this big burden I have to think about like, you know, when watchOS 4 comes out next year presumably it's going to be hard for me to justify porting over a big, complicated app and keeping a big, complicated app updated. But if it's a very simple thing, since that 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 fits what everyone wants anyway, then I can actually justify keeping it updated, keeping it in good working order, and and having it be something I can be proud of, even if I'm not actually using it myself a lot. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think it speaks to a lot of what we found that all watch apps in many ways should be, is that keeping them simpler is actually better rather than, you know, sort of the easy answer or whatever. Like it's, it's not one of these, you know, it's not just like saying, Oh, I'll make it easy or simpler because that's easier. It's I'm making it easier because that's better. Um, and in using the watch that I think is the, like, and if you even just thinking back to all the videos from WWDC this year about watch OS development, that's like the theme running through them all is that you had to, the entire usefulness of the application had to be able to be, you know, it, it, it felt by the user in two or three seconds. Yeah. Which is a very small amount of time. And if you, if your app is doing anything that is beyond that, um, then it's probably going in the wrong direction. And I think, as you say, it's a really helpful way to think about it. And it's something that I've had to sort of work through as I've been updating all my watch apps and thinking of some new ones is, I think the watch is a great platform for streamlining things as much as you can. And you're going to overall do a lot better, um, especially because of the performance and related issues um, that I've recently I've been trying like to do more complicated things in my watch apps. Like I was experimenting using scene kit, which is now on the watch kind of bizarrely. Um, so you can do th- uh, 3d, 3d, 3d stuff. And I was doing some kind of interesting, um, you know, 3d animations of graphs. And like, I was like, it looks kind of cool. And it looks kind of cool, and it runs runs great on the simulator. I put it on the watch, and it just doesn't it doesn't have the the impact that you that uh, that I would l- want for it to have, or at least that impact is offset by everything being slower. Because the at least in this this first generation watch, we just don't have the performance for it. And so at this point, I think watchOS three, especially until we see what the new hardware looks like um, this fall just keeping it as simple and basic as can be. And then who knows, maybe like I've, in a, I've kept around my fancy kind of in, 
intense code um, just in case um, I was, you know, just not activated. Um, there may come a time when you know, it's like, hey, if you're running on watch two, all of these things suddenly become possible, you know, that, that you can do more intensive. Now, you probably want to make it, the apps more complicated, but visually and in terms of what you could do from a processing perspective, it may become possible to, in, it, you know, to, uh, to do. But until then, what you're doing now makes a lot of sense. Just have something there, have it be simple, have it work really, really well, have it launch really quickly. And I think that's what most people are looking for on the watch is they just want something that they can, you know, tap a complication that says overcast on it and then pick a podcast and, and that's it. Or they, if they want to pause or skip, same thing. They just, they're you know, two taps and they're there and it's quicker than even if, you know, and then pulling out their phone and accessing it in control center. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Exactly. I hope so. And I guess we'll find out, you know, I'm going to do it. And then I guess I'll, I can report back in a few months, like after it's out, you know, to see like, all right, well, did usage actually go up or not? And it might not, but that's okay. Even if usage doesn't go up, I think having it be just up to date, but simpler is still the better approach. Yeah. Cause I think otherwise the problem too, is you would have to either, if you don't update it, you probably would want to, in some ways, pull it from the app. Yeah, like like running a WatchKit one app, having that be bundled in what is supposed to be like this, you know, this top of the line application. Otherwise, it starts to feel really awkward, and so it's just sort of like this thing that you have to keep. You either have to keep it up, or you just have to get rid of it. I think. Yeah, and to the four people who actually reordered episodes in my WatchKit two app, I'm sorry. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We're out of time this week, and we will talk to you next week. Bye.